What up, everybody? Welcome in. Crossing broadcast on a Thursday afternoon. What a day. What a 24 hours in Philadelphia sports. The Sixers get run off the floor in Boston. The Phillies get swept in Los Angeles. And we're all arguing about Jonathan Gannon once again on Twitter. Kyle Pagan is uh, on his way back from Boston as we speak. Uh, Producer Craig is coming down with him. Uh, We've got Governor Josh Shapiro coming on the show uh, at 1230 today. But in the meantime, let's bring him on. Bob Wankel's with me. We got Rush Joy. How you gentlemen doing? You ready to talk about one of the greatest days in in Philadelphia sports? You know what this is? This is like the um, this is gonna be this episode is gonna be like the South Park episode where they uh, they have to choose between the giant douche and the turd sandwich, really, to be the new uh, school mascot. You can say the the Phillies sweep could have been the giant douche. The Sixers uh, losing game two and getting clobbered could be the turd sandwich. Uh, I can throw the Gannon stuff in there as well. Bob, how are you? How are you doing, man? I'm all right. Uh, good, good to be on here. Very excited to be here on a, a positive Thursday. A lot of good things happening in the city right now. I'm fired up, man. Yes, yes. Russ, how are you feeling after one of the greatest sports nights in in recent Philadelphia history? I'm fine. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Philly fan brings up a good point. By the way, um, we may have to ban Kyle from traveling to Sixers games. They lost mm-hmm. uh, in Denver. Uh, well, NMB did not even play in Denver. Right. Salvage that and turn that into some uh, decent content, at least. Um, and, and now in Boston. Right. So we may we may have to just keep him uh, keep him home. Alex Day is correct. Uh, Kyle is never allowed to leave Pennsylvania ever again. So I, so I think he's going to um, he's going to be relegated to Jetro. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll keep him keep him on, on Broad Street and whatnot. But um, so I'm running the show today. Yeah. Again, we got. Um, Governor Shapiro uh, at twelve thirty. I don't really like how the boxes are arranged right now. I'm trying to get us back to the three. Um, there so, oh, there we go. Okay, there we go. Oh, Russ you can also a- click and drag. You can click and drag your here. I'll, I'll I'll help you here. There you go. Oh, I can move myself. Can I move here. myself? There you go. Here? I just moved. Oh, okay. There you go. All right. <laughs> Very good. Um, okay. Well, so we got to start the Sixers, and uh, yeah, it was not pretty. Uh, they got clobbered run off the floor, Boston shooting lights out from three. Sixers couldn't hit anything. I think there was a point in this game where they were one for 13 from three, two for 13 from three. They come back in the third quarter. They go on a, a, a mini uh, miniature run where they score five in a row. And I think uh, Boston came back and hit like seven threes or, or something in a row. At least it felt like that. So, um, you know, I, I guess the question really would be, I'll, I'll start with you, Russ, is uh, – Number one, are you are you surprised by that, and does it change does it change how you feel uh, about the series? Knowing that, I, I think we were probably all in a, in agreement that getting the split was was huge. But are you disappointed in the way that the second half of the the split played out? This this has kind of played out the way that I I thought it was going to. Um, a week ago on the show, I said, you know, if you're, if you're going to pick up the split. It's probably better for a, a fan base perspective to pick up game two than game one because you can win game one, but if game two goes horribly wrong, you're going to get the negativity creeping in and all the self doubt's going to start to hit. And like it, it's played out to form. And it's funny because this is a thing that came up in our Slack a few days ago, but like I said, just wait. Like if they get stomped by 15, 20 points, you're going to have people ready to jump off the wall with them. 
and everybody's, you know, favorite cardiologist, uh, you know, went out of his way to say, oh, that's not going to happen. I won't feel negative at all. And then today he's like, you know, ready to pull a Brooks from Shawshank Redemption. Uh, but, uh, so a little deep cut, but, um, I don't know. I, you know, the, the thing that I think you're, you're faced with here, uh, and, and not to pull your like two things can be true thing is that like, I, I, Atlanta put out for you what the game plan is to beat Boston. It was executed to perfection in game one, albeit with a limited team because you didn't have Joel Embiid. But like that spread, that bomb from distance, that create lanes because you're hitting from outside, like they executed to perfection in game one. You can't do that with Joel Embiid. It just doesn't work. And that doesn't mean that they're worse with Joel Embiid. It, what it means is that like you're going to have to do some real reconfiguration when you're planning out how game three and four are going to be. And like this is the thing that I, I said to some of those guys this morning is like you can have an all-time great player and even an all-time potentially great team that just like does not have a like has a bad matchup. The Phoenix Suns teams that were led by Steve Nash were some of the most gifted offensive teams in the history of the league, but they could not decode Greg Popovich's defense with the San Antonio Spurs. I'm not trying to say like, and that might be a little bit too hyperbolic, but like, you know, they're they're going to have to figure out how to get Joel involved in the game plan while also allowing a James Harden to find a rhythm. He couldn't find it last night. And like it, it kind of exacerbated everything. Joel couldn't really get going because they were trying to run so much of the offense through him. Like they typically would James Harden couldn't find a rhythm. I, that's, that's a big part of, you know, why things went. Through. Uh, Joel Embiid four for nine over oh two from three, seven for eight from the foul line, three rebounds, five blocks, three turnovers, two fouls, 15 points, a minus 23 mm-hmm. on the evening. Um, <clears throat> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to say that, um, you know, to, to have Embiid back there, to have his defense, to have his rim protection, and you look at the blocks in the first half of that game last night, and you look at how they were able to get out in in transition off of those and get some buckets going the other way. But you know, Boston was making so many damn shots that they were they were really, you know, those opportunities were few and far between, really. And uh, and I think we said coming into it too that you know Embiid hasn't played in two weeks, so he's going to have to work work his way back in. He's going to have to. Um, you know, it's gonna he's gonna have to knock off the rust. It's gonna take take him like a little bit to get into it and you know, play your good solid anchor defense and don't try to overthink it, find your teammates and you know, whatever, right? But you know, so so much of, of what they've they've done this year has been predicated on playing playing through him on the offensive end. So you know, you're you're fundamentally switching what you're doing offensively when he is you know out there. And um yeah, I agree. I mean it's not it's not some that's some crazy observation to say they play a completely different when when he's out there versus when he's not out there. Um, but he he can't be out there and only be a rim protector and a defensive guy, you know, because everything has to. He's he has to. He was also the catalyst for everything on the offensive end when he was out there too. So if he's not healthy enough to 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 bang and draw fouls and um, you know to hit hit his face up or whatever, then he's a liability on that side of the floor. And I'm not I'm not gonna be. I'm not going to go overboard from one fucking game that he came back. Right, and everybody knew that he was going to have to knock off the rust at some point, right? So, so, so that's why I think the conversations of whether he should should he have played last night, should he not have played last night, are are 
are redundant because he, he was going to need at least one game. We, we were all kind of understood that he was going to need one game or he was going to not really look like himself to kind of get back into it. So you're hoping that that's all it took and that, you know, he's back to looking more like himself on, on, on Friday because now they got the split and, okay, they gave up the second game, whatever, and now the series gets real. Yeah, and I mean, like, there there is also another part to this as well that, like, yeah, the, the rust is a factor and, like, the rust was going to come up. The, the question that you have to kind of, I don't know, come come to grips with if you're a fan is, all right, did you really think that you were going to be able to replicate game one again? Whether it was James Harden going off or Harden and Maxi having a more equal game where Maxi starts going off. Like, do you do you truly believe you had the ability to repeat the success of game one? And if the answer is yes, then it was a mistake to play Joel last night. But I think what you what you also saw last night is, all right, if you hadn't had Joel Embiid, this probably was an uglier game than it ended up being because Harden was unable to get going. I mean, again, it's hard to say because Harden didn't have the ability to go down three, four offensive possessions in a row and, th- and you know, put up a three or find his rhythm. So it, it it's hard to kind of like, you know, play out both scenarios at once. But like, I, I think that's one of the, the reasons that you also make the pitch to play Joel last night is that like, it's always better to have another you know, legitimate scoring option, even at a limited capacity, his ability to get to the line is still big. His ability to, to prevent the interior shots is big. I mean, I'll throw this back to you as the resident, you know, basketball guru here. But oh, like, I don't know about that. When, when we look at, when we look at game one, so much of what Boston was able to do was on the interior. They outscored the Sixers by what was it? 35 points on the interior. Mm-hmm. It was something, it was something absurd. Yeah, yeah. Because there was no rim protection, Boston was settling for what were good looks at the rim. But that inherently means they weren't putting up a lot of threes. Conversely, in game two, when it became apparent that Joel Embiid was going to be a terror on the inside, they started taking more jumpers from deep. They started taking more threes. It just sucks for the Sixers that in that third quarter, they hit pretty much anything they threw at the rim. But like that that's kind of your trade-off. Yeah, you had great rim protection, but... If Boston starts raining it down from outside, like you, you can't keep up, or at least you can't keep up in the style they were trying to play last night. Yeah, yeah, and you can't like you know you can't be like overhelping and selling out on the interior because Boston's ball movement was was just incredible last night, and they're finding open guys. I felt like every time I looked up, I felt like Malcolm Brogdon was taking another wide open catch and shoot three, you know. Um, but in the first game. Boston goes 10 for 26 from three, 38.5%. And then in game two, let me check this here. They went uh, 20 for 51, <laughs> 39 points. Yeah. So 20 for 51 versus 10 for 26. I mean, they essentially doubled their three-point um, output. You know, in, in game one, they only got to the line uh, 18 times. And in the in the second game – or I'm sorry, in the first game, they got to the line 18 times. The second game, they only went there 16. So – they don't really need to. You know, the Sixers are going to have to have to stay home on the perimeter, and not and not chase and not um, get caught up in that because you do have a beat back there now. You know you don't need to throw bodies in there because they were just just over over pursuing, I think, and being being overly aggressive there, which is why those those um, those looks were there. But I, I don't know. I, I think it's all overrated. The stuff like like well, the effort or you know they phoned it in or they would. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they were it in their heads mentally we got the split and whatever but if you told me at the You're beginning of the series not. what's that 
I said you would, you'd certainly hope not. And like, well, no, no. There was also the emotion. You can find that out if you can transport into somebody's head and. and yeah, but like, there was also the emotional aspect of like he had gotten named MVP. He had that presser earlier in the day where he's talking about his his brother who passed away and like giving his brother's name to his son and like, you know, everybody saw that press conference and it seemed like on Twitter the thought was he's going to run through a wall tonight. Like they're they're going to blow Boston out or like they're going to really take it to the Celtics. Like maybe they pick up both. And like I don't know, you you have to be realistic going into the series. It was a bad matchup all along. It doesn't mean that the series is over by any sense. What some people are are treating it like it is. It also doesn't mean that the Sixers are going to like go and run off the next three games either. Like this is probably going to be the six or seven game series that we all kind of expected it to be, you know, barring some kind of cataclysmic, you know, blow up here. Is it anything more? Does, does it have to be? Does the takeaway? from that game and from the first two games up in Boston have to be anything more than they got the split and Joel Embiid is back. I mean, what's, what's there to dive into? I mean, macro, we would all have, if you told me that at the beginning of the series, they're going to get a one, one up there and Embiid's going to be back. Okay, fine. No problem. So, so what are we, so what are we really analyzing now at this point? Um, Number one, I don't think Niang is long for this series. I think doc should trim the rotation down to eight. Um, immediately, which they typically do as you get further through the second round. But I don't see any point um, to having anybody other than Reed, Melton, and McDaniels come off the bench. Uh, Springer, funny enough, played pretty good defense of the trash minutes that he was on the <laughs> on the floor last night. You know, you don't have there wasn't enough experimentation with him to to know whether he was going to be a contributor in the playoffs or not. So I think it's that's got to be your eight man. Um, yeah. Because I don't see, you know, that sequence, man. That the thing that killed me last night, especially, was when uh, Ni- Niang was um, had that wide open three that he passed up, and he tried to dribble into the lane, and I don't even know what the hell he was doing. Turned the ball over, then Boston hit a three on the on the other end of the court. That was like a snapshot of just like what 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 that whole game was all about, you know. So um, th- that's from 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 macro, we're fine. One one, yeah. and beads back. Micro. Spacing. What are you going to do offensively with him in there? Are you going to play through him? Is he going to be the pivot? Or do you ask James Harden to be the James Harden that he was in in game one? Yes, that's really what Doc is going to have to figure out here. I'm curious to see how he does it. The question is if you can even try to make that work. You know, like there there could be, and and this kind of goes back to something that he talked about a long time ago, Doc, about staggering their minutes a little bit more. Like you you could try with a shortened rotation to -hmm. try to let Harden be Harden when Embiid's off the court. And like turn it back over to what game one ended up becoming. Like let it be the Houston Harden show, or let him at least try to figure out if he can do it again. But it I the the rhythm, like rhythm is so key to this. And it's so mm. key to James Harden being able to do that. And a lot of that's gonna be volume of shots. There just aren't enough shots to go around unless you're going to really reduce this to Harden getting almost all the shots with them beat off the court. And then playing that facilitator when he's on. And like maybe they're able to find a balance. Like maybe there there is a way. But what what I saw yesterday, and like let by all means, if you saw something different, let me know. But like I saw a team that looked like they were trying to go back to deferring and waiting for Joel to take over. Even though they subconsciously probably knew yeah. the guy's not fully healthy, they just looked like a team that were was actively trying to defer to the MVP to try to get them on track and to get the game on track. And I think that was just too much to ask of him in his first game back in nearly two weeks. Um, yeah. Deferential. 
you know, which is which is how they've they always play when he comes back from anything, you know, because it's like, well, we're just gonna throw the ball into him and let him let him do his thing, you know. But it just gets static and it gets stagnant. Like that was always the theme of of you know playoff series of uh, years past where it we always felt like other teams that the Sixers were playing were able to generate good looks on offense. They were able to get some easy buckets. They were able to just just make things look a little a little more effortless on that end. While it seemed like the Sixers just had to work so damn hard. Uh, for for every basket that they were getting, especially in that Toronto series, 2019, it felt like everything was just a labor, just getting a decent shot up, just just keeping up, um, trying to go against uh, um, Ibaka and Gasol when they had the two bigs in there. Like it just felt it felt like at times like it was just so hard for them to generate that kind of stuff. So that's what they so they got to figure out, man. It's it's nothing um, it's nothing crazy here. I mean, I think everybody knows what the what the storyline is. So. Um, I, I I just feel I I don't know man I don't I don't know what Embiid we get in Game Three I I've, I think before the series I don't think we did official predictions or anything like that but I've, to me it felt like a Celtics and seven kind of series just because of home court and Embiid being a question mark so I, I'm not I'm not deviating from that I still think the Celtics win the series but I don't know you got a different take on that are you with me? well no I mean like I, I thought Boston was going to win in six I I haven't really moved off of that yet I I do think that there's a, a chance I'm not going to say that the Sixers can't win the series. I just don't think that I think this is the worst matchup that the Sixers could have had of any team in the conference. And I think most people yeah. would probably agree with that. Like even against Milwaukee, I wouldn't have been that worried, you know, against Miami. I think it's like a tough series, but I still think you're better than Miami Like against the Knicks. Like you, you would take down the Knicks pretty easily. Atlanta might've been a, a little bit of a problem. Just, I mean, look, they, they even gave Boston a, a hard time, but I don't think that's a series you lose. Yeah. Um, I, I just think that Boston for whatever reason, all these years has just been a difficult team for this Sixers team to get past. By the way, there was one thing that that came up um, at the end of this this game, and was it was something that Missoula said that I I thought was hilarious, and I'm sure you've seen the quote. Missoula said to the media, "No one wants to ask about our adjustments we made from game one to game two, and then walked off." Well, I don't know what kind of adjustment it is. When your team hits every shot in the third quarter, we could we can write that up as luck. We can write that up as uh, I don't know, just the the basketball gods smiling upon you. But like, I I don't look at that game and say you know Missoula just put on a coaching masterclass. I think you well, just it's, saw it's a fundamental you, difference in in like the way they played again, like and beat on the interior, forced them to take outside shots. They hit at an alarmingly high rate, and that's it. You know, well, like that's not an adjustment. Team. They were playing a completely different team, too. You know, so it's like you yeah. can't, you can't. How, how are we going to make the comparison from from <laughs> game to game on adjustment when it's like you basically could roll out an entire different game plan versus a Sixers team that hasn't beat versus a Sixers team that does not have not beat? So if, you, if you, we were going back to like Toronto again, where they largely had the same like lineups going through Game Seven, and we were just comparing Nick Nurse. Does this Brett Brown responds with this? Nick Nurse responds with this Brett Brown. Responds. Okay, then we can go and make our list of adjustments and whatnot. But I don't. I'm not going to do it on on two games when the lineup was was different for the Sixers. I don't see the the um, the the point. You know, people are asking about my camera. By the way, do I look shitty? Do I look pixelated? Am I like, um, or do I look clear? Do I look? Um, I asked people in the uh, the comments. They won't tell me. They just say the camera looks amazing today. I asked, is it shitty? Maybe it was his wife. Somebody says that you look positively radiant today. Okay, well maybe the HD oh. is going. Maybe it's caught. Maybe it's Pagan's uh, shitty Fishtown internet was indeed holding the quality back. I, I'm throttled because he's throttled. 
Pagan does Hello. look like he uh, records the podcast through like a, a flip phone, like a Motorola, you know, 3GP kind of yeah, yeah. video codec. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just funny because I didn't, I, you know, I was like doing a, uh, like a, you know, I was doing new takeaways for last night's game and I got like 300 words in and then they started getting their ass kicked. I was like, oh, yeah. Um, uh, probably just going to leave this one in the in the drafts or whatever, because you get to a point where you're like, oh, they're getting killed. Nobody's going to read about this shit. I mean, nobody wants to yeah. um, read about it. I don't know why the camera is so good. There's multiple like settings, HD settings or something. But um, I, I think Russ just has better Internet, which is enabling my internet to be better so we're going to go with that explanation um we lost bob he didn't come back he's uh figuring out his shitty internet at the same time too so jersey kinda, jersey dirty jersey internet jersey, man. Really yeah, new, new jersey thing yeah so i feel kind of lost talking about the phillies without him they get swept out in uh la i you know the dodgers are good um bryce harper got on base five times i'm not going to overanalyze any shit in in may but um I don't know if you've been watching. Have you been watching enough for us to formulate a, a take on the the Phillies in that series uh, in in specific? No, no. Okay. No. Um, I mean, no, I've, I've, I've watched. I've watched some. I'm not going to sit here and act like I've watched every every game all the way through. It's nice to see Harper's yeah. back. Yeah. You know his, his right. ability to get on base after after missing time and coming off of a serious surgery in record time or near record time is highly encouraging. And should have a nice cascading effect. Yeah. And I would assume that it's going to help Trey Turner immensely. So, like, that's nice. Yeah. You know? um, Pagan's having an argument with Ford in the comments, by the way. Um, I guess because was Ford accused of being a Celtics fan or picking the Celtics to win, something like mm-hmm. that. I'm not sure. They're kind of taking on a life life of their own here. Um, I, I don't have a ton of, like, larger level observations on the fills. I don't know if Sosa is a third baseman. Uh, you need more out of Aaron Nola. You know, obviously Topper's going to fuck around the lineup until he finds something that, that he likes. I, I don't. You better be careful. You're going to get San Filippo trying to like figure out how to like do the show on his iPad or something. He's just like going to pop. He's just like gonna an old lady. He's going to like, he's going to be, it's going to be like this kind of thing. Hey, what are you trying to, Kevin, what? But Aaron Nola, Aaron Nola, he's, you know, a real. Real ace pitcher, sure. Uh-huh. No, cool. I know, I yeah. know. He's, awesome. he's, he's. Uh, I mean, he's still haven't got. I mean, lar- largely we're asking ourselves the same questions, aren't we? Um, you know, that we were asking at the beginning of the year. They get back to look. I mean, they they win how many? What four series in a row? They take three or four from the Rockies, two or three from the Sox. Uh, they take two or three from the from the Mariners, two two or three from the Astros. I don't know. It's it's they're gonna be fine. They're, they're, they're fine. fine. It's they, a, they, it's they a long ass season. It's too yeah. long of a season anyway. Like yeah. they. They're going to work out the kinks. They're going to be fine. If if, yeah. if somehow yeah. things fall apart, then fine. Like then then we have a conversation. They like, dug themselves a hole, and that's why. And now they're sitting at fifteen and seventeen. It's like, oh, they're still below five hundred. Well, they were a lot further below five hundred before going out there and, and getting swept. So, you know what um, drives me nuts though, Kevin, is like yeah. you again. Like you look at the length of the season, and people say, oh, you, you know, you dug yourself a hole. You really put yourself in the best. Yeah. The hell's the difference? It doesn't matter if you dig yourself a hole in the beginning of the ser- uh, of the season, or if like it happens in, Ju- in July. Like it's. It's all the same. You have a, yeah. a six-game losing streak at the start of the season or in July or in September. Like, effectively, for your record, it does yeah. the same thing. Now, you can talk about, like, the context. Like, it sets you off to a bad start emotionally, mentally. You know, mm-hmm. it gets a lot of heat on your coaching staff and all that. If it happens early in the season, it certainly would negatively affect you if it happens in September. But, like, the notion that, like, you can't dig yourself out of that is silly. This team has so much talent on it. That like they're going to be able to win in different ways, and getting Harper back and assuming that Harper is able to produce at a, you know, a good level, and Castellanos 
I mean, while the power might not be there driving the ball out of the yard, like he's getting on base, a lot of extra base hits, like that should be an encouraging sign. You didn't have that a lot last year. So like, I, I don't know that people, people getting all worked up about it. Like, all right, you're two games under 500. It's, it's the first week of May. It's okay. Everybody just take a freaking breath. Yeah. Nola's, Nola's a concern. The starting rotation is a concern. That needs to get rectified. Like you need to be able to start relying on your top two starters to go out and perform like top two starters, to set the uh, expectation and to set the rotation and and to kind of you know set the the tone for a series. And if they can't do that, then you start to look at all right. Well, what are three, four, and five going to do? Like that's when you start to get yourself into a problem. I think it's more of a mental thing on the starting you know rotation side of things than than it is about you know team gets uh, gets one run. Compared to like what was it? LA one, what was it, 10 1 the other night? Like I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh SB jump wants to trade Schwarber and Nola for Shohei Otani. Plug that one into the uh the ESPN trade machine. We'll see what the projected win totals are when we when we come back out. Can I get that. Chuck Fletcher's trade machine to uh, analyze that one? Or? Oh, we gotta yeah. do a tankathon. I don't know how to do a tankathon though. Unfortunately, I could do I it. I, don't know I, I could do it if you need me to. How to pull the fam. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's let's do yeah. the. I, I did want to talk real quick. Um, we'll play the uh, Shapiro, Governor Shapiro um, segment in a little bit here, but um, I, like not to beat a dead horse because I don't. We don't have to re um, relitigate the whole Jonathan Gannon. Super Bowl thing over and over again, but Adam Schefter came out on the Fanatic yesterday, Wednesday, and he said that, uh, oh God, what the hell was the quote? He said the the um, the way that Gannon left and the uh, tampering investigation affected uh, affected a lot of people's lives uh, at the at Novacare Center, NFL communities, whatever. Um, that was tied into him saying that the Eagles probably could, would have had Vic Fangio be the defensive coordinator if uh, the Gannon thing did not happen. Now, of course, the knee-jerk reaction to all that was just to say that, oh, fucking Gannon again, you know, he screwed us out of a great defensive coordinator and he's still hurting us even when he's gone and what an asshole he is and good riddance and he's public enemy number. He was already public enemy number one. Now he's public enemy, especially number one. And, um, you know, my 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 I guess the response from fans and from some media was to say, well, this, you know, this sucks because he cost us a really good defensive coordinator. Um, I don't know if the timeline matches up. It doesn't seem like the timeline makes a lot of sense. It seems like there's at the very least more to the story, because if you go back and you look at the timeline, January 29th was the. Uh, the week before the NFC Championship game, the AFC Championship game, I guess Tom Pelissero from NFL Network came out and said that the Dolphins were in agreement with uh, Vic Fangio on a five-year deal, four-year deal, with like, or three with like a fourth option year or something like that. And it was going to make him like the highest paid coordinator in the league. Uh, Gannon uh, went official to – sorry, let me back it up. It was reported then the day before the Super Bowl that Fangio signed a two-week contract with the Eagles to help them in their prep for the Super Bowl. Uh, Gannon Cardinals reports had been swirling. Steichen and Colts reports had been swirling at the same time too. Gannon went official to Arizona on two fourteen, and Fangio went official to Miami on two fifteen. So it feels like we're missing something in the timeline here because I'm not sure what the Gannon tampering stuff and the error that the Cardinals made in their interview process. I'm not sure 
why his departure precluded the Eagles from getting Fangio. I mean, I, I was in, it was my thought that Fangio told the Dolphins like, Hey, I'm your guy, which is why it came out on the 29th. But then he did the two week thing with the Eagles to help with the Super Bowl. And it's like, okay, now that's done. We can go official. Like, am I, am I understanding that correctly? Or is there something that I'm missing here and trying to put the puzzle pieces together? That sounds about right. So what, so what is the, so the question really, again, is what about Gannon leaving kept the Eagles from getting Fangio? Like they could have said, like, I don't think this guy's probably guy. If they really wanted him that bad, they could have fucking fired Gannon too. Right. So, so I don't, there was nothing in the end. If the Eagles really, really, really wanted Vic Fangio, there's nothing that was going to keep them from getting him. Yeah. So I don't, I need to have more on that timeline, but I think people are just kind of, I think people are overreacting to it a little because this because Shane Steichen did the same damn thing. Yeah, I, I think it's just because I think it's because Steichen because Steichen's thing seemed like it was more on the up and up, and Gannon's thing seemed like it was a lot shadier. I think that's why people are upset, and it was easier to blame the defense uh, for that Super Bowl loss than it was the offense. Like that's oh, right. it. and they were already and people mad. and people hated Gannon more than they did Steichen. I don't think people really hated Steichen, but they they really didn't like Gannon, and it was easy. Let me um, roll back down. Hey, I'm scrolling John McMullen's um, Twitter feed because I'm trying to because he explained the the technicality in the uh, the interview process, which is why the the um, the Eagles got or why the Cardinals got bit and the Colts did not. This is what John says. He says, "Enough with the Gannon bullshit." Shane Steichen interviewed with the Colts a second time between the NFC Championship game and the Super Bowl. That's permitted because it was a second interview. You can't have a first interview in that time frame which was uh, Monty Ford's mistake. The Eagles took advantage of that rule and they gained draft capital. Kudos to them for winning outside the margins like they usually do and taking advantage of the legislation. Uh, the spin that Gannon wasn't invested in the Super Bowl is dumb. The defense didn't play well over the final 30 minutes. So if you need a scapegoat, you have it. Just don't buy into the ridiculous narratives. And for the Fangio uh, conspiracy nuts, he was helping the offense um, during that, during that two-week period. All right, so here I have uh, I have a little bit of breaking news, and then uh, then I, we do the tankathon. Okay, if you're cool with that. So sure, a uh, little bit of breaking news here yep. is that uh, Jalen Carter has uh, reached agreement on a contract with the Eagles, four years, twenty one point eight million dollar deal. Okay, per Adam Schefter, so that's nice. Got him, uh, got him under contract. You got to got to feel good about that. He's the first first round pick to uh, come to terms. So that's. Very good. It's always nice. Yeah. And now let's let's throw it to uh, the Tankathon because, as yeah. you know, Kevin, uh, the Philadelphia Flyers, um, too good to be bad and too bad to be good. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a classic wow. rock song. Here, here we go. Sounds like Steppenwolf. All right. So uh, in <laughs> in our in our Tankathon for the day, the Philadelphia Flyers finish right where they were, seventh. Here's good news. I'm going to give you good news. People are getting freaked out now again about the Russians and they're getting freaked out about the fact that Mishkov might not be allowed to come over. Like there, no. there's like a two, two, three year window. He's under contract to a Russian club. There is a chance. I'm just going to throw it out there. There's a chance that some teams could get spooked and that maybe he falls. Um, the real question is if you're, if you're the flyers, uh, can you risk can you risk having another Russian player under contract to you or affiliated with your organization, you know, just willy nilly get sent off to Siberia like Ivan Fedotov was this year? I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know what you do. Mishkov's really good. He's gonna be fantastic. He could have in any other year been the number one overall pick were it not for the current uh issues over there. 
Yeah, cool. yeah. Well, that would be very on brand. Wouldn't that be very apropos after the last couple of seasons the Flyers have to have a talent fall to him and then they take a gamble on him and then he's stuck in, uh, you know, the other on the other side of the world in Asia, right? Banished to Siberia. Yeah. Well, I guess part of Russia is in Europe and the other parts in Asia, but uh, most of it's in Asia, if I remember. On on landmass, you're the landmass. Yeah, that's a tricky the, one. Russia, Russia's kind of like Turkey. I think because like when you get to Istanbul, I think that shit on the one side of Istanbul is Europe and then the other. We'll call it Eurasia. How about that? Eurasia. Eurasia. Um, all right. Uh, we're going to we uh, got some time with Governor Josh Shapiro uh, from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania yesterday. And we taped a segment that we are going to play right now. So I hope you guys appreciate the gov. Let me hope I don't fuck this up here. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, huge Philadelphia sports fan, Philadelphia 76ers, Eagles, Phillies, Flyers, everything. Um, congratu- belated congratulations on um, winning the election. I guess you were sworn in a couple a couple months ago. So, so how, how much time now does a, uh, does a governor have to dedicate to watching sports? Can you actually can you watch sports the way you used to? Or are you doing more important things? How does that all work? No, I mean, I'm I'm a little over 100 days into the new gig, which, by the way, is, I mean, just the highest honor of my life. I'm so proud to serve as, as governor. Um, but I have not uh, missed a beat when it comes to sports. Now, I don't get to kind of watch the way I used to, where I could know that I was dedicating, you know, the two hours or whatever to a game, sitting on the couch with the kids. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is, you know, on the iPad, in the in the truck, traveling across PA or what have you. But I'm still following it crazy close and um, especially come playoff time um, I'm locked in I'm as locked in as one of the Sixers are who are playing uh, and I got a lot of opinions on it so. I, I always love that that's my favorite thing that people say about politicians where it's like well doesn't he have more important things to be doing right, right now shouldn't shouldn't he be uh, locked in the Capitol working on like I can multitask, uh, I can multitask. Yeah. Yeah, you can do you can do fracking legislation and uh, watch the Sixers on the pad. I'm sure probably, <laughs> probably figure it out at the same time. You know. Um, yeah. So when you when you were on the uh, you're a Monco guy and you grew up a Philly yeah. sports fan, but when you were on the campaign trail, did you did you have to pander to the Pittsburgh people at all? Did you have to wave the terrible towel or tell them that you're a Steelers fan or do any of that? No, let me let me be very clear, Kev. You cannot bullshit your way through sports. I mean, <laughs> you, you just can't. And and I'll tell you, uh, if I'm in if I was doing a podcast in Pittsburgh. Um, and someone said Eagles or Steelers, I'd say Eagles and they could boo me or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this is my approach. I'm I'm an avid sports fan. So if the Steelers are playing not against the Eagles, I want to watch that game. I'm going to cheer on the Steelers. I'm pumped up for them. And in fact, my lieutenant governor is from Pittsburgh. His wife works for the Steelers. She's one of the executives there. So I have no problem kind of cheering on the, the Pittsburgh teams. I want to see them be successful. I want to see them do well. For example, I'm thrilled the Pirates are doing so well. But when they play against the Phils, I'm going to root for the Phils. So that is how I approach this. Um, I love sports, uh, but you don't bullshit your way through sports. That is the type of honesty I think that actually helped uh, Fetterman do well in this region because we did like a bit on the website where we'd always give him shit about being a Sheets guy, you know, and be like, are you ready to capitulate to – to Wawa or whatever, right? And he would say the same thing that you would say. He'd say, "Well, I don't, I don't know what you want me to say. I'm a Sheets guy, you know." And I, that actually put play, that played well in Delco because yeah. they were like, "Oh, this guy's real. He's honest. He's not pandering to us." So, knowing that the Pittsburgh fans are, are similar to us, I'm sure they appreciated that. Yeah, you you just you you cannot 
BS your way through sports. And, you know, look, our daughter goes to Pitt. So I'm, I'm also a huge Pitt Panthers fan. That's a genuine, you know, uh, fondness I have for them, but you just gotta, you gotta be true. And um, for me, just to, Oh, you're a West Virginia guy. Yeah, sorry about that. All right. Well, anyway, it was great being on with you, and uh, <laughs> we'll see you next time. But anyway, it's um, you just you just got to be true, and and I think people people really appreciate that. I will say the culture is really different. I mean, for example, the Steelers have an unbelievable winning culture. I mean, six mm-hmm. rings, right? God yeah. willing, the Eagles get to that. And I've been to a number of tailgates. Um, at the Steelers. And by the way, I won't wear a Steelers jersey when I go there, but I'll, no. I'll root for them. Folks are so friendly, so kind, so warm and welcoming. And then I was doing a tailgate at the Eagles game shortly before the election. And Austin Davis, our lieutenant governor, goes, uh, <laughs> mind if I wear my Steelers jersey? I was like, look, man, you can wear your Steelers jersey, but I won't have your back. Like if if you get into it with the fans there, you're on your own. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He, he made it out alive. He was all right. I actually, so this is a question I had written down for later in the thing, but I'll, I'll jump to it now because I've got family out in Greensburg and they're all Steelers mm-hmm. and, and Pirates yeah. and, and Penguins fans. I honestly have to say, and you're a basketball guy, so you can speak to this, but I, yeah. I think Pittsburgh would be a great NBA city um, just because I know it's not like traditionally a basketball town, but the fans are great. They're very much like us. They're very similar to, yeah. to Philly sports fans, just yeah. diehards. And like, you know, Pitt, Pitt had a really, really good basketball program not long ago. Duquesne was all right. I mean, there's there's knowledgeable fans there. I don't I don't think it's like really uh, that far fetched to see the NBA do. I'm not saying the NBA will ever well ever go there, but I could see them doing well if they had an NBA team there. I, I think they do great. And I'll tell you what we're we're sort of trying to work on is a WNBA team in Pittsburgh. Yeah. There's there's a couple groups that are focused on that, and I think that would be pretty extraordinary if we can pull that off. Um, so let me back it up here. You are a four for four Philadelphia sports fan, but but the Sixers in basketball has always been your number one thing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. What's so what's the background there? How did that come to be? First off, I just love hoops. I played a lot as a kid. Um, I still play. Uh, you know, coach my younger kids and really enjoy. Um, I just love the sport. I love the team aspect of it. I've just always loved it, and um, and and through that obviously fell in love with the Sixers. And you have to understand, so I'm 49. Mm-hmm. The, the 1980 team, right? Uh, 1980, right? That as the Phillies and the Sixers were, were doing so well there. Those were my formative years, right? That's when I became a fan. And then I had to live through like the next 25 years where they, uh, <laughs> you know, none of the teams won. But, yeah, um, yeah. you know, growing up on uh, what I think was still the best backcourt ever, in Philly sports, Cheeks and Tony. I mean, yeah. I thought they were no offense to Harden and Maxi, who are you know obviously playing lights out right now, but mm-hmm. Cheeks and Tony, I don't know that anybody had a quicker first step than Andrew Tony. And I don't know that anyone was ever a better floor general than Mo Cheeks. And so having them, you know, Moses and then of course Dr. J, who was really like the first star that played above the rim. Obviously, yeah. MJ yeah. came along after that and perfected it and you know, he's he's obviously the goat, but that those were the years where I fell in love with not just basketball, but Sixers basketball. And, you know, I, I like to think it's maybe the one good thing I've done for my kids. I pass that down to them. And, <laughs> um, and, and you know, we just love it. I mean, our, game one, for example, we were all together on the couch, which was really special. Our daughter yeah. was in college and we were screaming. I mean, it was like the most intense experience obviously yeah. it turned out great but you know i've just always been a diehard fan and, and, and love the team 
Um, so obviously, you know, for for people who are watching this, we this is going live on Thursday, but we taped this, so we didn't want we didn't want to get caught up in a game two timeline kind of thing. But yeah. we can talk very generically about the series, and I guess I would ask you, number one, just what you thought about game one. But but yeah. in a in a very basic sense, like if the if the Sixers are going to win the series, what 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 has to happen in your mind? Yeah, so let's talk about game one, and then let's talk about going forward. Yes, yeah, sure. we have a healthy Joel. I I was. Um, even though we were kind of only down, I think it was five, six points at halftime of game one, I was really worried about the second half because I thought, frankly, B-Ball Paul was playing small. Um, I thought that Brown and Tatum um, were able to get through Maxie and Harden on the perimeter, and then there was just like nothing in the lane to stop them. It was like Swiss cheese in there. Yeah. And whatever happened at halftime, I, I, I guess I read one of the accounts, you know better than I, they kind of got on B-Ball Paul – he started playing bigger and tougher. I thought the defense really firmed up. Um, we hit our shots. I remember Boston was shooting lights out, like 70%, yeah. I think, in the first half. Yeah. You knew they couldn't continue that. And I just love the grit that the team showed. Yeah, Harden was on fire this half, but these guys hit big shots, including Tobias Harris. You know, when Harden, toward the end, drove down the lane, flipped the ball back over his shoulder. You know, Tobias, who doesn't always finish – um, you know, when he needs to, he finished and they did what they had to do. They played good team defense. And I thought that gave Maletta a lot of confidence to now have, you know, again, knock on wood, a healthy Joel for the long run. I think going forward, Joel showed in the first series how he could score less, but pass out of that double team mm-hmm. and create open shots, you know, for Melton and Maxie and Harden. And these guys knocked down their shots and Tobias as well. And so I think, you know, if Joel's able to do that and then also be that big presence in the lane and know that he can get maybe a longer spell that he's going to need with a a banged up knee and B-Ball Paul's got some more confidence because the fact that he played game four in round one and played so strong in in, uh, game one of the second series, um, I think that we're well positioned. I mean, I have been worried in our second rounds in the last number of years. I feel more optimistic right now that the Sixers can get through the Celtics. Um, my take on the MVP was that uh, certainly Joel Embiid deserved it. I thought he deserved it last year. I thought he deserved it the year before. I think Nikola Jokic and, and Giannis probably deserved it all of the, all three of those years too. And I think when we look back at this era of 15, 20 years from now, you know, if you tell me that each one of those guys had won at least one MVP, um, I, I certainly would have thought that was fair. Um, I don't know yeah. if the voters think that way or vote that way, but now when when we look back on it, now Embiid finally winning the MVP. Your thoughts on that? Well, first off, I'm I'm so happy for him personally. This guy has sacrificed physically, uh, mentally, to put himself in a position, and I think you really saw this maybe two seasons ago, to be in shape, uh, to be healthy, other than a few of these kind of freak injuries and and to become the leader that this team needed and now to have a supporting cast around him that um that that i think understands how to play effectively with him i'm just so i'm so happy for him i'm proud of him and i'm excited for the city and by the way he was going up against some great competition i mean Jokic is yeah. one of the greatest players ever mm-hmm. he's an extraordinary mm-hmm. basketball player his court vision is I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. Second to none. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like amazing. So I, I'm so happy for him, but I also know he won't feel satisfied unless they win it all. And, and it seems yeah. like that's what he's locked in and focused on. I thought it was really cool in game one against Boston. The camera kept 
I was watching on TV. I don't know, maybe you were there, but mm -hmm. when the camera would point to him, he was genuinely excited for his yeah. team and genuinely yeah. pumped up for them. That's the sign of a leader. He was like coaching the guys on the sideline. He didn't even need to be on the sidelines, but he was there. And I think that's a sign of a great leader. So I think physically he was just, just, just a demanding presence, a dominating presence yeah. Um, yeah. this year. And mentally and emotionally, he was a great leader. Yeah, there was buy-in. There was maturation from him. You know, early in his career with his quotes and the way he would present himself to the media and on the court to be kind of riding the roller coaster up and down, you know, a little emotional, a little open, a little closed off. And he's, he's a more consistent entity, I think, at this point. But I, I do think... Yeah, I think people get caught so caught up so much in the in the Jokic and Bead, Jokic and Bead bullshit that you kind of forget like what every everything that Joel has been through. Yeah, uh, didn't start playing basketball until he was fifteen. Only played a year at Kansas. Came in, had the navicular, had the facial fracture, had the had the meniscus, right. had every every other injury. Your, I can't remember. Your, yeah, when he got the finger caught in the jersey or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and I lost a brother. I mean, when you put all of that, when you put that stuff. When you put the Jokic and Embiid like argument off to the side, and you just look at a vacuum of what Joel overcame to get to this point. I mean, it's a fantastic story. Everybody in the media, the sports media, loves stories, right? They love telling stories, right? It's about when uh, you know Johnny Four Fingers threw that fastball at Connie Mack Stadium f fifty years ago. I mean, right. I guess this is one of those stories, though, isn't it? Yeah, it, it totally is. And um, he's just—I mean—he's an extraordinary guy who's who's dealt with a lot of challenges, as you said. He's done the hard work. Um, and now, you know, he's affecting the next generation of basketball fan. I talked to you about my journey to become a Sixers fan. You know, now looking at my kids, 12, 14, 18, and, and 21, those, particularly the younger ones, I mean, they're growing up with Joel. They're seeing this. They're, yeah. they're seeing kind of how we're on the precipice of like that, you know, getting to that next level. And it, it reminds me a little bit of what it must have been like to be, you know, a Pistons fan, then a Bulls fan. When they remember those years when they kind of had to beat the best to get there. Yeah, I think yeah. watching Joel get his, you know, get himself together, get his leadership together, get his physical, you know, body together, and now being in a place where they're knocking on the door of getting through what has been this ceiling for them, the yeah. second round. I think they get through this. And the sky's the limit for him and, and this team and, and the next generation of Philly sports fans. Well, and I hope people just appreciated the ride, regardless of what happens in the playoffs, because there was a lot of people who had this philosophy. We talked about it on this show multiple times of keeping the team at an arm's length because they didn't want to buy in emotionally again and get burned in the playoffs. You know, because they'd watch the second round exits and they said, well, how much am I going to invest in this when I've been when I've been hurt in the past? But I hope that people were at least watching and beat and enjoying and beat and being being able to to take that into account not always thinking like well you know it doesn't mean anything unless they get past the second round i you know if, if if we're saying that then there's a lot of seasons that don't mean anything so i guess that was my argument to people was just saying like yeah. I, I you know you have you look i know that the championship is what matters most i know that getting that past the second round is what matters most but don't sleep on MVP because there's only five Sixers who have, who have ever won it, you know? So Right. I, I don't sleep on it. And get emotionally invested. I mean, we're at the yeah. point where it should be emotionally. Uh, that is the point. That is the point, yeah. yeah. Um, last one for you, Governor. Um, I got, I got to get your thoughts on on the Sixers' proposal to to uh, to build that arena in Center City. Obviously, they're not even – they're be nine years away if that thing gets approved and if it goes through. Um it's been highly politicized. There's opposition. There's support. I mean, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. But just from from, yeah. from your perspective, I'm I'm curious what you make of it. Yeah, I mean, I, first off, I think we just need to like look at this calmly and rationally and take some of the heat out of it. And I'll just say, as a governor, 
Um, as a huge Sixers fan, I mean, I want to make sure the Sixers are here for a good long while and that they have a great facility to, to play in. Um, I think it's, you know, a great thing that the owners have proposed doing this without any public money. They're not asking me as governor. Mm -hmm. I'm not aware that they're asking anyone for any kind of public money. And I actually think what the city did, maybe it was a couple weeks ago or something, Kev, they, they said, um, we're going to just carefully study this. Let's make yeah. sure that we're kind of taking some of the noise out of the conversation and looking at this thing in like a really thoughtful and concrete way. And I think that's the best thing we can do right now is just sort of study this issue carefully and make sure we're making the best possible decision um, for the future of the city, the future of the neighborhoods, the future of this great team um, and the future needs of our commonwealth. Yeah, it's not too much to ask. Let's try. Well, maybe it is too much to ask to just look at something ca calmly and, and rationally these yeah. days. But to kind of withdraw the the vitriol from it and just say, well, look, let's, be, let's be honest. Like Philadelphia is not the first is not the first city you think of when it comes to welcoming change. You know, so maybe try to like get people to think <laughs> yeah. of. All right, well, we've been going to the sports complex for forever, yeah. but let's just th at least think about what's I'm a big, Yeah, I'm a big believer in like thoughtful you know, calm, rational review of things and, and frankly, trying to bring people together. I mean, yeah. you're in this building. I'm in the Capitol now. It's about bringing Democrats and Republicans together. Yeah. Yeah. For this, it's about bringing different, you know, components of the city uh, together. And there's a, there's a lot of differing interests here. But the only thing I'm not calm about is rooting for the Sixers and being a sport. <laughs> that, I get very emotional. Well, you come back on the show sometime in the fall, and we'll try to apply some of that rational talk to Eagles fans when they installed the new defensive coordinator. I'm sure we'll have plenty of complaining on that. So we'll try to we'll try to go even code. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I'm bullish on the birds. Howie did another amazing job. That guy deserves a lot of credit. Um, they got a great coaching staff, great owners. You know, Jeffrey Lurie cares so deeply about the city and the team. I think they're in a really, really strong position. Don't sleep on the fills. I know they they got off to a little bit of a slow start, but they're winning a ton of games right now. They're hot. They're hitting. Bryce is back. I mean, I really, I really think we're in this sort of other than the Flyers. I mean, we're in like this really unique moment. And I keep telling my kids, I'm like, it wasn't always this way, right? Um, I kind of want them to suffer through some lean years, but you know, they're they're seeing Eagles win the Super Bowl and Phillies go to the World Series and Sixers playing well. So. You know, my kids are a little spoiled, but, you know, those of us who have lived through this, um, you know, it is uh, it's wonderful to see, you know, us being in, in the good years now. Well, we will keep riding the wave and hopefully that continues into the Eagles season and beyond. Governor Josh Shapiro, thanks for your time. We'll have to get you back on. Awesome. I'd love to. And keep up the great work. Love your podcast. And thanks for having me on.